We're going to be continuing in our teaching series, Seven Churches, A Call to Repentance and Reformation, in Revelation chapters 1, 2, and 3. Last Sunday, we looked at the church in Pergamum. It had compromised its theological and moral standing by allowing the teachings and practices of Balaam and of the Nicolaitans to enter and corrupt some of its people. Uh, They were engaging in idolatrous feasts, eating foods that were sacrificed to the various idols in the city, and they were engaging in various forms of sexual immorality. And the Lord Jesus warned them to repent or he would come and make war with them with the sword of his mouth. And I owe you a bit of an apology at this point. On two occasions, I stated that Smyrna, the church at Smyrna, which we looked at a couple of weeks ago, I stated that the church at Smyrna was the only one of the seven that received no correction. And I misspoke. Miles had pointed this out two times uh, to me, and it caused me to think as I entered into the study this last week, there is a second church that received no correction. That is the church at Philadelphia. I think what happened with me was that I misread one of my commentaries, which stated that the church at Smyrna was the only church in chapter 2 that received no correction. So I wanted to clarify that for you and apologize for that, for that error, that mistake. In the next section, we are going to look at the letter to the church at Thyatira, or in Thyatira. The church in Thyatira was similar to the church in Pergamum, in that it had also compromised its theological and moral standing when some of its members had embraced the teachings and practices of Balaam and of the Nicolaitans. The primary difference between The two churches. Now, there's multiple differences, but the primary difference between Thyatira and and Pergamum is that there is a ringleader that is identified in the church at Thyatira. There is one person in particular who was really leading the Christians in this church astray. We didn't see that in the letter to Pergamum. And so we have this kind of ringleader person who's focused on, identified by gender and by name, and, and this person was corrupting the people. Just a little historical background and context. Thyatira was the smallest city of the group of seven. Smallest city and smallest church. And yet, this letter to Thyatira is the longest of all the seven letters. Uh, It contains 12 verses. The second longest is the letter to the church at Laodicea in chapter 3, verses 14 through 22. Thyatira was located about 40 miles northeast of Pergamum on the river Lycus. Today it is called Akizar. It's in Turkey, Asia Minor, ancient Asia Minor, but modern day Turkey, and it's called Akizar today. And it has a pretty sizable population today, about 123, 125,000 residents. So it's a good sized city. If, if you were to Google search, Um, Akizar or Thyatira, you would see that within the modern-day city there are spots of ruins from the ancient city. And and there are ruins that even represent, possibly represent this church building, I guess, or this church. Thyatira was originally called Pelopia until one of Alexander the Great's successors, Seleucus, Uh, He conquered and transformed that city into a a military outpost in 290 B.C. And that's when the city became Greek, if you want to call it that. Thyatira was a gateway to the more prominent cities to the west, such as Ephesus and Pergamum and Smyrna. And the main task of the military stationed there in Thyatira was to delay attackers so that those prominent cities could prepare for the onslaughts of, you know, eastern raiders and armies. So it was really just kind of a a delay spot. It would get decimated, giving the other cities time to prepare. Unlike Smyrna and Pergamum, Thyatira was not an important center for religion. 
the primary god worshipped by the Thyatirans was Apollo, the Greek sun god. And there is no record of there being much of a Jewish population in this city during these times. Doesn't mean that there weren't Jews there, but there weren't many as there were in some of the other more prominent cities. I would just say that folks in Thyatira were not focused on Greco-Roman religion and emperor worship like the neighboring cities of Pergamum and Smyrna. In other words, the city's focus was not on religion like the other cities. This city was focused on its main industry, and that would be the production of wool and dyed goods, especially purple dyed goods. Like all of the purple dyed goods were coming out of Thyatira because they had a plant there that you could extract purple dye from its roots. And so it was the number one producer of purple dyed goods in the whole region. In fact, the demand for these, these goods was so great that some of the first labor unions were formed to manage production and everything else associated with the industry. They were called guilds. Okay, They weren't the teamsters back then. They were guilds. And these guilds eventually took over every kind of business, every kind of trade, everything that had to do with, with the selling of goods in Thyatira. So if you wanted to take a job in Thyatira, if you wanted to run a business in Thyatira, you had to join a guild. It was basically illegal to work in the city without being a member of one of these guilds, one of these unions. And guess what? These guilds had their own patron deities, their own idols that they worshipped. And these patron deities were honored in some pretty specific and explicit ways. The way that you honored the patron deities was to attend the feasts that were held in honor of them. And during those feasts, you would eat meat and other foods sacrificed to these false gods, these idols, and you would engage in sexual immorality, orgies, and these sorts of things that they would have. Now, since the Christians in Thyatira had to work and to provide for their families like everyone else, they were forced to join these guilds, thus putting them in precarious situations. In other words, if you were a Christian and you lived in Thyatira, you basically had one church to attend this one. And if you wanted to work and provide for your family, you had to join a guild, which means that you had to participate in the worship and feasts and these sorts of things. You had no choice. All guild members were required to attend these feasts and, and participate in these wicked activities. But if Christians went to these feasts, they would sin and they would dishonor their Lord. But if they didn't go, they would suffer ridicule. They would suffer persecution. They would eventually be removed from the guild, which means that they would lose what? Their businesses, their employment, their jobs. The pressure Christians faced in Thyatira came not from Greco-Roman religious zealots like in the other cities. It didn't come from the Jews as in Smyrna. It came from the guilds. This is the backdrop to this letter. This is the context. Please take your Bibles and turn to Revelation chapter 2. We will be looking at verses 18 through 29 this morning. Verse 18 says, And to the angel of the church in Thyatira write, The words of the Son of God, who has eyes like a flame of fire, and whose feet are like burnished bronze. In the vision recorded in chapter 1, Christ is described as the Son of Man, which emphasizes his humiliation emphasizes his sympathetic identification with believers as their merciful high priest. 
And yet this letter begins with a greeting from the Son of God, which emphasizes His deity, emphasizes His sovereignty, emphasizes His oneness with the Father. It indicates that he is not approaching the church at Thyatira as the sympathetic, merciful high priest, but as the divine judge who is about to dole out judgment on this adulterous assembly. By the way, this is the only place in the book of Revelation where the title Son of God is used right here in addressing this church. Pretty crazy. And Christ further describes himself as having eyes like a flame of fire and and feet like burnished bronze. This lines up with the visionary description in chapter 1, verses 14 and 15. Eyes like a flame of fire represent the fact that no Creature is hidden from Christ's sight, Hebrews 4.13. That his eyes are, uh, that his eyes are on the ways of man and he sees all his steps. That is how his, his all-seeing eyes are described in Job 24, verse 23. So the flaming eyes have to do with the piercing view and stare of Christ, which sees everything. It sees our hearts. It sees our thoughts. It sees our acts of worship. It sees our sins. It sees everything. Nothing literally escapes his sight. And this is not just in reference to the church. He sees everything happening in the church, but he sees everything happening outside of the church, even with unsaved men and women and children. Feet like burnished bronze represent his purity and his authority as judge over all. John 5.22, you remember the text where it says, The Father does not judge. He has given me judgment over all. Christ will return as judge and use his feet to what? Tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God, the Almighty, Revelation 19, 15. Let me tell you what this greeting is meant to do with these descriptors of Christ. It is meant to invoke terror in the hearts of all who claim to be in Christ, but live adulterous, immoral lives. That is the purpose of the greeting, to strike terror and fear in those who name the name of Christ and yet have doled out parts of their lives to wickedness and adulteries and these sorts of things. And I think it's also meant to invoke terror in the hearts of those who do not know Christ yet. But remember who it's directed to, a church. Christ not only sees what we are doing but he will give to each of us according to our works. Verse 23b, we'll get there. Judgment, where does, think about it, where does judgment begin? It begins in the house of the Lord, right? 1 Peter 4, 17. That's what we see happening here in this letter to this church. And Christ addresses his letter to the angel of the church in Thyatira. And if you've been with us for a couple of weeks, this is a common greeting. He always addresses the angel. And we know that angel in the Greek is angelos, and it can be translated as messenger. And that is the meaning here. This is addressed to a primary messenger for this church. And who were the primary messages of these churches? The pastors and elders. So that is who is in mind here. He is writing to the messenger who is the pastor of this church. This letter comes to him, and he is to read it to his congregation. Now, that's the greeting, that's the salutation, and we've identified who the author is. It is Christ as judge, Christ as one who is pure. Now we can move to verse 19. And here's where really the the stuff begins here. Christ says, I know your works, your love and faith and service 
and patient endurance, and that your latter works exceed the first. Before calling this church to repentance and reformation, Christ commends the faithful in the church. And this is a pattern of all the letters. He begins with, with, con, you know, with a, a commendation, with praising them for the good things they do before he gets to the bad things. And in the case of Smyrna and Philadelphia, he never gets to any bad things because there weren't. He basically tells them, I know your works, and then he divides their works into five categories. We'll talk about them for a moment. A, their love, right? You see it in the text. I know your works. And then he says, your love. So that would be A. The faithful were showing love for God and love for one another despite the vast difficulties they were experiencing in the church with the disobedient members and outside of the church with the guilds. To me, this is a powerful uh, powerful praise to this church that, that somehow in the midst of all this difficulty and this outer pressure and, and the, you know, the hedonistic Christians in the church, for some in the church to keep love and loving Christ and to love others is amazing to me. Because one of the first things to come under attack is, is love in our relationships with one another when we're experiencing great difficulty. And yet this church just kept clinging to love. They kept loving Christ, and they kept loving one another. In fact, I think what they did was they created a little bit of a huddle with all the faithful ones. The faithful Christians really stuck together in the midst. They had to stick together not just in their, in their community, but in their own church. But they stuck together, and they loved one another, and they loved Christ. It was like they were a little band of faithful brothers and sisters who were, who were just doing their absolute best to put on love, which does what? Binds everything together in perfect harmony. Colossians 3.14. I'll tell you what, the church at Ephesus could have learned from this church when it comes to love. They had love loss. These faithful in this church did not have love loss. So he commends them for their love. Be their faith. The faithful kept believing and kept trusting in Christ despite the difficulties they were experiencing inside and outside of the church. And this to me is another high praise and an amazing thing that in the midst of great difficulty and pressure, they kept the faith. And that is a testimony to the true keeper of faith, which is not you and I, but Christ, the author and perfecter of our faith. They kept the faith. And the Greek word for faith is pistis, and it can be translated as fidelity. And I like that English word better than, than faith here, fidelity. Fidelity means to demonstrate continued loyalty, right? Fidelity is a, is a great virtue. And that's what these faithful Christians were doing. They were demonstrating continued loyalty to Christ, despite what was going on in the church and outside of the church. <coughs> Pardon me. Three, or C, Christ commends them for their service. The faithful displayed their love for Christ through works of service. And that is, by the way, precisely how our love of Christ is to, be, is to be shown. It is through walking in purity and these sorts of things, but it is to be shown through good deeds and through works of service committed uh, to the church or, or um, performed for other Christians in the church and even for those outside of the church. In other words, this church the faithful in this church, they loved Christ and they showed it through serving one another and through serving outsiders in their community. And what a, what a difficult environment to, to love people and to serve people in with all these guilds controlling everything and all of the rampant immorality. Simple fact is those who love will express that love through works of service. <clears throat> D, Christ commends them for their patient endurance the faithful patiently endured all of the difficulties that came their way outside, from the outside, and from the inside. And I'll tell you what, as a pastor, 
as a Christian for almost 20 years now, it's much more difficult to endure not the outside pressure in that, but the inside, the things that happen in the church are far more difficult for me personally. It's when Christians, when there's inbiting and disunity and and, and, you know, no forgiveness, lack of forgiveness and these sorts of things are unholiness. Those things are just so troubling inside of the church. And yet this church, this band of faithful believers in this church patiently endured even the wickedness of other brothers and sisters and those who were posing as brothers and sisters. When the, when the guilds persecuted them for not attending the feasts, what did they do? They patiently endured. They didn't go to the feasts, they didn't capitulate, they patiently endured and suffered whatever consequences. When the disobedient members of the church criticized them for not following their example and poor, behave, poor sinful behavior, what did they do? They patiently endured. When the community scoffed at them and rejected their message, right? Because this was a missional church. When the church, or when the, when the community rejected their message, when it rejected the gospel and, and scoffed at them for following Jesus, which in the pagans' mind is totally lame, what did they do? They patiently endured. They patiently endured. You might say that they just kept clinging to Christ. And then lastly, E, Christ commends their progress, their progress. The faithful were making progress or growing in each of the areas that Christ has described. They were growing in love. They were growing in faith. They were growing in service. Their earlier works were being exceeded by their latter or current works, which shows what? Progression. And this proves, I'll tell you, this is such a profound truth that's, that's just layered into this progress. It proves that God uses difficult and even hostile environments to test, to sanctify, to grow, to bring to maturity His true people. You would think that in an environment like this where half the church is, is acting like not Christians at all and then you have the guilds and all of this external pressure coming in, you would think that there wouldn't be any sort of progress in this church. You would think that there would be not progress, but that they would regress and go back. But no, there was progress. Why? Because God uses difficulty and suffering and persecution and all of these things to shape his people, to make them more like Christ, to grow them in love, to grow their faith, to grow their service. In fact, I'm convinced that God doesn't do it in any other, in any other environment. Difficulty is the forge in which God does his greatest works in the hearts of his people. Ease brings what? Trouble, laziness, apathy. Difficulty is a much better place for us. It really is, even though we don't pray for that. Who prays for that? Are you nuts? Lord, bring tribulation. Well, he's good at answering prayers. Nobody prays for that. You'd have to be out of your mind to pray for that. But when it comes, what do we pray? Lord, sanctify me through this. Use me for your glory through this. After commending the faithful, Christ now voices his concerns and lays out their sins and his call to repentance. Really what he does is he issues a threefold warning. A threefold warning. He warns the faithful... Well, why would he warn them? You'll find out. He warns the faithful, he warns the ringleader, and he warns those who are following the ringleader. Now, let's look at each warning. Number one, Christ warns the faithful. We see this in verse 20a. Jesus says, but I have this against you that you tolerate. Stop right there. We know that he's talking to the faithful right now because he just got done commending the faithful for their love, faith, and service, right? He's talking to them. He's still talking to the faithful. 
And he issues a solid warning to them. It's amazing to me that with all of the, the sinful stuff that was happening in this church, the first group to get called out was the faithful. Why? Why call out the faithful? Why have them as number one? I'll tell you why. Because the faithful were tolerating the ringleader, tolerating the ringleader's wicked, sinful behavior and influence over others. In other words, the faithful were tolerating sin in the church. They are the first group that Christ calls out and appeals to. It's as if he's saying, it's up to you to make some changes here. And I'm going to talk more about that at the end of the message. So the first group to get called out is the faithful. Why? Because they were tolerating the ringleader, her wickedness, those who were following her. They were tolerating sin. Let's look at the next warning, number two. Christ, Christ's warning to the, to the actual ringleader now. He's dealt with the faithful. Now he's talking to the ringleader. Verses 20b through 20a. Listen to what he says. That woman, Jezebel, he calls her Jezebel. That woman, Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. And listen to what he says in verse 21. I gave her time to repent but she refuses to repent of her sexual immorality. Behold, I will throw her onto a sickbed. So it's really twofold. Christ is calling out the faithful for tolerating her, but he's also calling out her once again. The ringleader was a woman whom Christ identifies as Jezebel. Now, are we to take her name literally here? No, she wasn't actually named Jezebel. In fact, if you know your scripture, you know the two, most uh, the, the two most infamous names in all of world history are Jezebel and Judas. They both begin with J's. If your name begins with a J, get an R. I'm kidding. <laughs> Literally, Jezebel and Judas, right? When we think of infamous people, maybe Al Capone too, but we think of, biblically speaking, we think of Jezebel and we think of Judas, the one who betrayed Christ. But this was not her actual name. I don't believe it was her actual name. I believe it was a nickname Christ gave her because of her wickedness. She was like Jezebel in the Old Testament. We read about her in First and Second Kings, those two wonderful historical books. She was the daughter of Ethbaal, king of the Sidonians, wife of Ahab, king of Israel, and she worshipped false, you know, the false gods of Baal and Asherah. How were they worshipped? How were these false gods worshipped by her and others in those days? Through what? Eating food, sacrifice to them, to idols, sexual immorality, those kinds of things. Because of Jezebel's influence, very, very profound, strong influence, her husband Ahab built a temple and altar to Baal in Samaria, which was really his capital city at the time, or capital district. And what happened? This led to, to the leading astray of many, many Israelites, many people in his kingdom. They began to worship Baal and Asherah and those false gods. So she had this sort of sway over Ahab to the point where Ahab became a worshiper of her false gods, and then he starts building temples to them. And now the people of Israel are being led into idolatry. This dynamic duo committed more evil than the rulers who had come before them. It literally says in Scripture, in, 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 in the King's text, I think it's in uh, chapter 9, verse 37, or somewhere in that ballpark, it says that Ahab did more wickedness than all the kings before him. He was a wicked king, and his wife helped him be wicked. As a punishment for her wickedness, Jezebel was, was literally pushed out a window and trampled by horses and eaten by dogs. When she fell, she died, and her corpse was eaten up by dogs. And it was King Jehu that really had her put to death. He was a good king that came to remove all of the wickedness from Israel at the time. Now, the woman in the church at Thyatira was like Jezebel, like that woman I've described to you from First and Second Kings. 
She even called herself a prophetess, right? A, a female who gives prophecy, who proclaims oracles. She did this to gain notoriety, to gain fame, to gain acceptance within this church. But technically, there are no more prophets or prophetesses because God has spoken to us through His Son, Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 and 2, thus ending the prophetic revelatory period. There is such a thing as prophecy today. When somebody proclaims the prophetic word, they are prophesying, but it ends there. This idea of receiving revelation and then distributing it, that's gone, that's over. Why? Because this is a closed revelation. We need to not hear from God through those means any longer. But she called herself a prophetess, which means God gives me these oracles and now I am giving them to you. And sadly, the church here at Thyatira failed to understand this, the prophetic, you know, that, 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 that the prophecies are over with, that they're complete, that it's done. They failed to understand this, and they actually received her as a prophetess. But they didn't stop there with her. They also put her in a teaching position over the congregation, which clearly violates God's rules for church leadership in 1 Timothy chapter 3 and Titus chapter 1, where, you know, the, the, um, uh, the instructions are given for elders and those who preach and teach in these things. Women are not included in that. They can teach other women and teach Sunday school to children in these things, but they're not to stand in a pulpit and proclaim the truth like men are. It's just God's rule. I didn't make it up. But this church thought she was a prophetess and gave her the pulpit so that she could proclaim her oracles or whatever it is that she was proclaiming over the people. Now, when she entered the pulpit, what did she actually expound? What did she teach? The Word of God? The Gospel? No, no. Maybe just enough of it to keep her deceptions going, because the enemy does that, right? He uses God's Word and twists it. She probably talked about Jesus and talked about the gospel, but then she was blending in the teachings of Balaam and the Nicolaitans into her teachings. So she wasn't proclaiming God's word as it's intended to be proclaimed. She was giving a hybrid of, of heresy and gospel mingled together, which made her extremely dangerous, very dangerous as a teacher. Her basic message was this, you can be in Christ you can be forgiven, and you can do whatever you want to do because of God's grace. She was an early antinomian, one who was lawless. You can eat food sacrificed to idols because you know what? You're covered by God's grace. Uh, you can engage in sexual immorality. Why? Because you are covered by God's grace. It has no impact on your on your spiritual life. She was very Gnostic, by the way. It doesn't impact your spiritual life. It only impacts the body, and God isn't concerned about the body. This is what she taught. She would, she would probably tell this congregation, I'm sure that she would proclaim, don't get in trouble with the guilds and lose your jobs. Go to the feasts. Eat, drink, sleep around, be merry. Do whatever you want. You're covered by grace and you're a spiritual being and that's what matters. That was her basic message. She seduced Christ's servants, Christ says, his people to follow her wicked practices and to engage in them. And not with one another per se, but even with her. The text says with her. Her, which means that she was not only preaching this, these fallacies from the pulpit, she was offering up her physical body to the members of the church. You can commit sexual immorality with me. It's okay. She was a true harlot. And the faithful Christians in the church were tolerating her and tolerating her wickedness allowing her to remain in the church, allowing her to enter the pulpit. I can't figure this out with the faithful Christians. Maybe they weren't as faithful as I'm saying they were. That's just bizarre. They should have thrown her right out the front door and said, never come back, Jezebel. At some point in the past, Christ had called Jezebel to repent repeatedly, but she 
repeatedly refused. And because of this, he was about to deal with her once and for all. Once and for all. Now here's what's interesting about this text. The phrase, onto, but it says he's going to throw her onto a sickbed. The phrase, onto a sickbed, is not part of the original Greek text. It was added by translators later to, to help kind of maintain some continuity here. And I'm not saying that's wrong, that that uh, way to look at it is wrong. I'm not saying it's wrong. I'm just telling you that it's not part of the original or earliest manuscripts. Due to her refusal to repent and the severity of Christ's warning, her next stop was not a sickbed, but damnation. Commentators propose that the original Greek text would have been rendered as, Behold, I will throw her into hell. I will throw her into Sheol. I will throw her into Hades. Either way, whether she's about to be thrown onto a sickbed or she's about to be cast into hell, and I think it's cast into hell, this Jezebel was about to experience the devastating judgment of Christ for refusing to repent. That's the bottom line. Now let's look at the last warning, right? We saw the warning to the faithful, the warning to the ringleader. Now we see Christ's warning to those following the ringleader, verse 22b and 23a. Christ continues and says, And those who commit adultery with her I will throw into great tribulation unless they repent of her works, and I will strike her children dead. Oh, but Christ is so loving, and he rides around on a My Little Pony with a rainbow behind him. He's so kind and and gentle and friendly and loving. He is all of those things with the exception of the My Little Pony rainbow deal. He literally threatens to kill her children, to cast her into hell and kill her children. And what this tells us here is that Jezebel had a bit of a following in the church at Thyatira. And and, and that makes total sense. When you preach that you can have Christ and have the world, that's attractive. Shouldn't be attractive to faithful Christians who have been truly regenerated. Maybe maybe it's a bit attractive to the, the newbie baby Christian who doesn't know anything yet. I don't see how it can be, but that's an attractive message to worldly people. You can have Christ and you can have the world. So she had a following in this church. And some of them were Christians who actually got deceived and believed her twisted false gospel and engaged in the wicked practices she promoted like adultery. Married folks were going outside of their marriages to sleep with others. Fornication was happening. All sorts of things. There was even fornication between married, married men with Jezebel herself. They were sleeping together. These things were happening. She had a following. She was basically transforming this church into a brothel with her as the head prostitute. That's what she was doing while the faithful sat there and played Atari. I don't know what they were doing. This gal brought in food sacrificed to idols for the feasts that she set up and scheduled, and and her followers were there to, to eat, drink, sleep around, and be merry. And Christ threatens to throw those following her into great tribulation if they don't repent of her works. Great tribulation means great distress, great trouble, great turmoil. And he also threatened to strike her children dead. Now, is Christ referring to her literal flesh and blood, biological children? He certainly could be. We don't know if she had children. With the way she was sleeping around in the church, she probably had about 92 of them. We don't know if he's referring to her actual biological children. I don't think he is referring to them at all. I think he's referring to her spiritual children. 
The church was about 40 years old when John wrote Revelation, which means that her false teaching had been around long enough for a second generation of errorists to have arisen. These heretics resulted from her teaching, which makes, their, make, makes them her spiritual progeny or her spiritual children. In other words, there was a whole generation of false Christians in there who belonged to her. They are her spiritual children, and I think that's who Christ is addressing. Christ threatens to strike this group dead. Dead as a doornail. Similar language is used in Acts 5, 1 through 11 with Ananias and Sapphira. This is striking them dead, right on the spot. Heart stops beating, mind stops working, stroke, heart attack, whatever it is. He threatens to strike them dead to the ground. And yet Christ had a broader purpose for his judgments against this church, and we see it in the next line. Let's move to 23b. 23b says, And all the churches will know that I am he who searches mind and heart, and I will give to each of you according to your works. The broader purpose is that all of Christ's churches will know that nothing escapes his sight, that he will judge his churches according to their works, and that he will give to each one according to their works. If his churches tolerate sin like Thyatira, he will exercise the same devastating judgment against them. And we're not talking about just the other six churches in Asia Minor. We're talking about every church until he returns to take his church with him or to come back, however that unfolds, whatever your eschatology claims. Every church for all time this warning goes out to. Christ closes his letter with an exhortation and a promise. Let's look at the exhortation in verses 24 and 25. Listen to what Christ says here. But to the rest of you in Thyatira, who do not hold this teaching, who have not learned what some call the deep things of Satan, to you I say, I do not lay on you any other burden. Verse 25, only hold fast what you have until I come. Apparently, Jezebel and her followers thought they could somehow plumb the depths of Satan's domain while remaining spiritually unscathed. This is pre-Gnostic teaching, what she was teaching her people here. And in that day, it wasn't called Gnosticism. It was called the deep things of Satan. Okay, So she held to these teachings called the deep things of Satan, and she proclaimed these pre-Gnostic teachings over others. And MacArthur gives a good description of what Gnostic teaching or what she was doing here is. He says, Gnostic, Gnostic teaching said that one was free to engage the sphere of Satan and participate in sins of the body without harming the spirit. Since the spirit belongs to God, their twisted logic, twisted logic went, what does it matter if the body attends adulterous feasts and engages in sexual immorality? They imagined themselves to be free to explore the satanic sphere and then brazenly come to worship God. I think that's a great description. She taught that, hey, you can engage in all these sins because that doesn't have any kind of impact on your spiritual life or your soul. That's what she taught. And so people followed her example. That's Gnosticism. Gnosticism totally kind of throws out the importance of the flesh and puts all of the emphasis on the spiritual life. Modern day Gnostics would be Christian scientists. They I don't know if they practice sexual immorality like this, maybe, maybe not, but they totally disregard our physical bodies to emphasize the spiritual. When, when in fact, God has redeemed our souls and our physical bodies, we will be raised into an imperishable physical body. So God puts an extraordinarily high premium on the physical body, which means, and what are our physical bodies called? The temple of the living God, right? Romans 12, so we must care for our physical bodies and not use them to engage in sinful things. We must not think that we're okay spiritually. 
what we do in the flesh damns the soul. Think of it like that. That's not what she believed. And she taught her people these Gnostic sort of ideas. To those who did not hold Jezebel's teaching and her pre-Gnostic blather, Christ declares that he will burden them no further. Bearing the burden of seeing blatant false teaching and immoral living rampant in their church and having to resist the incessant solicitation and ridicule from the Jezebel party was burden enough for them to bear. Well, Christ says, I'm not going to burden you any further. You've been through a lot of burdensome stuff having to deal with her and the guilds and everything else. That's just the grace of Christ coming through to the faithful. You've been through a lot. I'm not going to burden you any further. But he did burden them, in a sense, with taking action against Jezebel. He said he would take action, but he's calling them to account, so he wants them to do something about it as well. And lastly, Christ exhorts the faithful to hold fast to what they have until he returns. What did they have? They had the works of saving grace, right? Love faith, service, and patient endurance. Verse 19, that nice little list there, those are the things they had. Christ wants them to keep doing those works and and, and keep growing and, and to never again tolerate sin. Don't ever tolerate somebody like Jezebel and her sin again. Don't do that, but grow in your love, grow in your faith, grow in your service, grow in your patient endurance, and grow in your intolerance of sin. In the next three lines, Christ issues a promise. Let's move to verses 26 through 28. The one who conquers and who keeps my works until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron, as when earthen pots are broken in pieces, even as I myself have received authority from my Father, and I will give him the morning star. Oh, what a promise. The conquerors are those who keep Christ's works until he returns or until they pass away. What are Christ's works? Well, in this context, they are once more listed in verse 19, right? Christ is saying, keep my works or keep doing the things that you've already been doing. Love, faith, service, and patient endurance. When we walk in these works, we are keeping the works of Christ. To those who conquer and keep these works till the end, Christ shall give them two things. First, he shall give them authority over the nations to rule them with a rod of iron. Now, this promise is taken from Psalm chapter 2, verses 7 through 9. It has to do with the millennial kingdom and Christ's people ruling over the nations with him. Not ruling over other Christians, ruling over the nations with him. And yet rebel nations shall be dashed to pieces like clay pots when they are struck with a what? Rod of iron. Christ shall give his conquerors authority to rule with a rod of iron. He will give them this authority just as the Father gave him authority to do this. What a promise. And secondly, he will, or he shall give them the morning star. Well, what does that mean? That's interesting. What does that mean? Is he going to give them galaxies and planets? No, that's Mormonism. He's not giving them planets or a literal star. What or who is the morning star? The morning star is Christ himself. He identifies himself as the morning star in Revelation 22, verse 16. He's identified as the morning star in another New Testament epistle. This is, what is this promise? This is the promise of Christ's fullness. He shall reveal himself to those who conquer when they enter his glorious presence or when he enters our presence. Either way, he will reveal his fullness to them. In that moment, they will know him fully as they have been fully known by him. Right? 1 Corinthians 13, 12. That's what he's promising here. 
I will, I will give you authority to rule the nations alongside of me with a rod of iron. I will give you the morning star, me in all my fullness. And I tell you what, I love both of those promises, but I especially love his fullness. Because right now we see him through the eyes of faith, which is like looking at him in a dimly lit mirror. But one day, because of this promise, if we conquer and hold fast to the end, we will see him with our very eyes and we will live by sight, not by faith anymore. We will see him as he desires for us to see him in all his fullness. What a wonderful promise to those who conquer, not to mention we get to rule the nations. I can barely rule my household. Rachel won't let me rule the household with an iron rod. She's got the rod. But what promises these are to those who conquer? Let's move to our last verse, verse 29. Bruce, you would like that because that's exactly what's happening in your house. I heard you. I like that. Anne might be short, but she wields a mighty rod of iron. I've gotten away of it a few times. Verse 29, listen to what Jesus says. He declares, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. This is his closing statement in each of the seven letters. He repeats this over and over and over. It emphasizes our responsibility to hear what he is saying here through the Holy Spirit and to obey what he is saying here through the Holy Spirit. In other words, Christ holds those who hear these words accountable to obey, to yield to what his instruction says, and to believe and to obey these things. And really here, the context is, I would say, it's our responsibility to hear and obey the Spirit's instruction to all of the letters, absolutely, but especially to the letter to the church at Thyatira. We are to heed his warning. Closing. may come as a surprise to you, but the specific sin in the church at Thyatira was not, you know, idolatrous feasts and, and eating food sacrificed to idols or, or sexual immorality or any of those things. It wasn't, that's not the primary issue here. It would be a mistake to make those things the primary issue here. Those are things, and they are important sins that need to be dealt with, but that is not the true and deepest error of this church. It was tolerance of sin. Tolerance of sin in the church. And here's the deal. As Christians, we tend to believe that Christ is pleased with us, that we are okay as long as we are not the ones in the church engaging in sinful behavior. And yet this passage of Scripture teaches so incredibly clearly that Christ will hold faithful Christians accountable when they tolerate sin in the church. If there is sin in the church and you're not the one who's you know, perpetuating it. You, we have this tendency to think, well, I'm okay. It's not me that's doing it. It's them. No. No. This text literally teaches that toleration of sin is a sin that Christ will judge and punish. We're not in the clear when our brothers and sisters engage in sin. If we let that slide, if we let that go... We are guilty of sin. That's what was happening with the faithful Christians in this church. And now you're thinking, wow, I can barely live my own life. Now I have to keep tabs on every other Christian. Yes! <laughs> and think of how much worse it is for me as a pastor here and the elders The church is God's holy institution on earth, and every Christian must work to keep it that way. Every Christian must work to keep it that way. We must pursue personal 
purity, and holiness. Really, it starts at the individual level, doesn't it? If we are all pursuing personal purity and holiness, that's going to have a broad effect on the corporate body or on the entire body of Christ. So it begins with each of us committing, if we are in Christ, committing ourselves through the power of the Holy Spirit, committing ourselves to personal purity, to personal holiness. That's where it starts. And that ought to frighten you when you think about what's happening in the church today. Holiness isn't even mentioned. Sin isn't even mentioned. Repentance isn't even mentioned. Church discipline isn't practiced. We must, we must. I know, I know it ain't fun. I know it ain't easy. But we must, we must lovingly expose, lovingly reproof, and lovingly correct sin in the church. Each of us is bound by the authority of Christ to do this. And we must be willing to remove from our congregations those who refuse to repent of habitual sinful behavior. I don't like doing it, and I've had to do it before, but it is something that we must be willing to do. Now, this might sound cold. It might sound cruel. I know it sounds foreign with all of the preaching that's circulating today. All of the love, 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 grace, 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 grace. No mention of holiness. No mention of wrath. No mention of sin. No mention of justice. No mention of purity. I know it sounds weird. Some of you are thinking, that just sounds just mean. You know why it sounds mean? Because these things have not been preached. The whole counsel of God has not been proclaimed in love. It might sound cold and cruel, but it is precisely what our passage of Scripture tells us to do. It is precisely what many passages of Scripture tell us to do. As I pointed to earlier, Matthew 18, verses 15 to 17, that's the church discipline text. It describes how to exercise church discipline when a member sins and what to do if they keep refusing to repent. And what is the end thing that you must do? Remove them from the congregation. Where in Scripture does it tell us to tolerate our own sin? Nowhere. Why would we think it's okay to tolerate the sins of our brothers and sisters? We are not to tolerate our own personal sin. We are not to tolerate the sins of others in the church. We are to deal with sin biblically. We are to be killing sin or sin will be killing us, John Owen. And if we fail to do this, Christ will deal with us just as he dealt with the church at Thyatira. You might be thinking, what happened to that church? Did it stop tolerating sin? Did it stop tolerating Jezebel and her wicked followers? And did it call to repentance the Christians who got caught up in this stuff, what did it do? Did it repent? Well, it might have for a season or two, but since there are no biblical churches in Akizar today, it must have capitulated and been shut down by Christ at some point. There are no biblical churches in Thyatira, which tells us that the church did not repent, that its lampstand was removed. And such is the destiny and fate of every church of Christ that tolerates sin. That is what the result will be. They will cease to exist. Christians who tolerate sin in the church shall be judged and disciplined by Christ. Fake Christians 
in the church who live like Jezebel and seduce others to follow their wicked, sinful example shall be thrown into hell, shall be struck dead. Christians who are deceived and get caught up in wicked, sinful practices like idolatry and sexual immorality, you know, sleeping around, sleeping with their girlfriends, all of those things, porn, all of that stuff, those Christians who get caught up in those things, what? They shall be thrown into great tribulation unless they repent. It could be that I'm describing you right now and you're wondering why your life is filled with so much trouble. Christ has thrown you into great tribulation because of your sin. You need to repent. Christians who do not hold wicked, sinful teachings and practices are to continue to strive in the works of saving grace, love, faith, service, and patient endurance until the end they are the conquerors who shall receive from christ the promises of kingdom authority and his fullness let he or she who has an ear hear what the spirit said to the church at thyatira